You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. What percentage of your time do you think you spend working? Now, now don't answer that too quickly, because I want you to make sure we're all in agreement what we're talking about here. Um, Yeah, I'm talking about your place of employment, where you work and get a paycheck, Uh, but it's more than that, isn't it? Um, You work around the house, don't you? Um, There's chores to do every day, whether you get a paycheck for it or not, you know, doing dishes and and washing the laundry and taking care of finances and mowing the lawn and all those things, all that work we do around our homes. And for you who are students today, we call it school work. There's a reason we call it school work, (laughs) because you're working at learning. You're working at your school. So whether you're a student or you're a retiree or a homemaker or you have a job for employment somewhere, how many hours a week, what percentage of your time do you think you spend working? Not counting your sleeping time, what percentage of your awake time? It's a lot, isn't it? I've read different articles and books on this subject, and... um, some people have estimated at least 60%. At least 60% of our waking hours is spent working. I would guess that if you include house chores, it's higher than that. So think about this. If you're awake, the majority of your time is spent working. That makes it a big part of your life, doesn't it? Let me ask you another question. I'm going to stick my neck out on this one. I have no idea how this is going to turn out. <laughs> For those of you here in the room, how many of you remember hearing a sermon on the biblical subject of work? Okay, it's some. If you've been here at CCC more than 10 years, I'm glad you raised your hand. (laughs) Because I remember preaching on this. (laughs) Uh, You couldn't look around too easily, but I would guess that no more than 15 or 20% of the hands went up. Um... I'm not surprised by that, a little bit saddened, but not surprised, that even though the huge percentage of our waking hours is spent working or studying, very few of us have ever been taught what is the Bible teaching, what is the Bible's teaching on the subject of work. So on this Labor Day weekend, we want to do what we can to fix that. We're going to do something a bit unusual this morning. Our tendency here at CCC, if you're a guest, is to take one passage of the Bible and milk it for all it's worth. We love to dive it in, take it apart, put it back together, and see Christ. This morning, what we're going to do is more topical. I'm not making this up. We're going to go from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. We're going to go from cover to cover. And it's going to be more of a topical study, and it will be a Bible study, but we don't want it to be merely intellectual. Yes, we want our minds growing We want our understanding, our thinking, our heads to grow. Do we have a growing understanding of what the Bible teaches about work? So we do want our heads to expand, to grow on this, to deepen on this. But we also want our hearts impacted. We want to see our hearts, our affections grow. That we understand why we're doing this. And to be very frank, we want our hands to be affected as well. We want to see our hands, the fruit of our labors, the product of what we do, whether it's teaching or in sales or making, making some sort of orthopedic part, no matter what we're doing, that we see our hands changed 
as we see what the Bible teaches us about this subject of work. So that you don't get lost today, because we're, like I said, we're going to go from cover to cover. Think of it this way. I'm going to give you some memory hangers, okay? We're going to begin by looking at work in paradise lost. So what was work like before the fall? What was work like in the Garden of Eden? So we're going to start there. And then we're going to jump way ahead to the other end of the Bible, Revelation 22, the last chapter. And we're going to see what will work be like in the paradise yet to be revealed, the new heavens and the new earth. But we're not going to send you out of the room without talking about this era between the gardens. You and I live, work, in this era between the gardens. How does the gospel have a practical impact on how we live every day at our work or school here in this era between the gardens? So let's begin at Paradise Lost. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. If you have a print copy of the Bible with you, great. I'll try not to go so fast you can't keep up, but there will be times when I just read to you a passage just to save time. Um, if you don't have a print copy of the Bible with you, my hunch is you, you have a Bible app on your phone. So I won't be offended if I see people pulling out their phones. I know you're not texting your friends. You're looking up Bible verses. Work in paradise lost. What did God commission Adam and Eve to do in this perfect, sinless, curse-free world that we know from the Bible as the Garden of Eden. We read about that in the first two chapters of the Bible. I'm going to read selectively from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. What we're seeing here is what was work like before sin ever entered the human race, before the curse ever affected this universe. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Genesis 1, 26. <clears throat> then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Have dominion. Some synonyms for that phrase, have dominion, might be to rule or to reign. Mankind, human beings, image bearers were to rule over the rest of this created world. Genesis 1.28. And God blessed them and said to them, to Adam and Eve, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Hmm. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Let's go to chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 15 kind of a recounting now of the creation from a different angle. Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And that phrase, work it and keep it, implies at least manual labor. I'm not limiting it to that, but it includes manual labor as one expression of Adam's ruling the earth. So Adam was to have dominion. He was to rule and reign over this created universe and at least part of that was manual labor. Interestingly, if you drop down a little bit in chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. 
And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. Now, we read that in our modern Western culture, and it doesn't really grip us. But in the old systems, the ancient ways, naming something was an expression of authority, an expression of ruling. Adam was given the responsibility to name all the created things. That was an expression of having dominion. He was doing intellectual work. He was doing intellectual work as he gave names to all these non-human things that were created. He was ruling, reigning, and that was expressed even in the naming of all these creatures. Folks, I want to point out something that should be obvious already. Work is not a result of the curse. I think sometimes we Christians naively fall into the Garfield Syndrome. You know the Garfield syndrome, pulling the blanket up over your head as you say, I hate Mondays. I I don't think Garfield was a Christian. (laughs) (laughs) You know, sometimes we can look at our work here in this era between the gardens, and it does have frustration included. We'll talk honestly about that. But when we see the frustration of working in this era between the gardens, we can wrongly think that work itself is a result of the curse. If Adam and Eve hadn't sinned, there wouldn't be any work. You know, and you kind of assume that before sin entered the human race, Adam and Eve just had lives of ease, you know, they just kind of laid back and sipped lemonade. Um, and you kind of assume when we get to the other end, when we get to the new heavens and new earth, we're just going to sit around all day. The Bible has a very different picture. And I think that if you and I have our minds immersed in the Word of God on this subject, it'll impact us in significant practical ways Monday through Friday as well as Saturday and Sunday. As we see, work was not a result of the curse. Work preceded the curse. God gave Adam and Eve this commission to work manually and intellectually before sin ever entered the picture. Why would He do that? Why would God commission Adam and Eve before sin ever entered the human race, before the curse ever infected the world, why did God give them, why did he commission them work? Well, that's, that's what they were designed to do. They were created to rule, to reign over this created earth for the glory of the great king, the king of kings and lord of lords. Adam and Eve were made to be image bearers. Now, this is a significant part of understanding the Bible and the history of the human race, our understanding of God's plan of redemption, is that we human beings were created as God's image bearers. Now, there's a whole lot packed into that, but let me mention at least two things that will directly impact our view of work. One is that being an image bearer of God, a reflector of God, is that we are representatives of him. One way I like to think of it in my simpleton mind is this. God is the great king. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. He is the sovereign over all things. And he created all things. Animals, plants, non-living things. But his very special creation, his unique creation, his creation that was in a category all of its own were human beings. He made human beings as his image bearers. 
And it's as if he put Adam and Eve into the Garden of Eden. And these, this isn't a literal translation, but this is my interpretation, my paraphrase. God said to Adam and Eve, I want you to be my prince and princess. I'm the king. I'm in charge. I'm the great king over all. But I am putting you here on this created world to be my prince and princess. And under my name and for my glory, under my smile and for my smile, I want you to rule. I want you to reign. I want you to manage this created world for me and with me. You're my prince. You're my princess. And so Adam and Eve, even before sin entered the human race, they had this glorious, this glorious, enjoyable, fruitful commission from God. To rule, to reign, to work. They were to represent God as his image bearers. And not only to represent him, but in another sense to reflect him. They were to be like him, to reflect him and how they lived and how they worked. Did you know that our God is a working God? God is not a God of mere leisure. He's a working God. Are you still in Genesis 2? Look at verses 2 and 3. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So in creation, God was working. In verse 8 of Genesis 2, it says, The Lord God planted a garden in Eden. He planted a garden. God was doing that work. You know, Jesus said this. Jesus himself said this, didn't he? When he was um, pushing back against the religious leaders who apparently didn't understand their Bibles, he said to them, after he'd healed a man on the Sabbath, an invalid on the Sabbath, Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. So God the Father is working. God the Son is working even till now. So, in summary, what do we see in work in Paradise Lost, the Garden of Eden that's in the past? What do we see about work there? Well, work preceded the fall, and it was to be done enjoyably, fruitfully, productively. What other words do you want to use? Under the smile of God and for the smile of God, as his image bearers, his representatives, reflected him in their work. Work in the Paradise Lost. You ready to go to the other end of the Bible? Last chapter, Revelation 22. We're going to the other end, friends. Revelation chapter 22, the last chapter in your Bible. What will we be doing in the paradise yet to be experienced? The paradise that is yet to be regained, the new heavens and new earth. While you're turning there, uh, let me just make a, a legitimate but maybe amusing comment. I think many people, including some church-going people, have a view of heaven, view of eternity, that they've gleaned more from uh, movies and TV programs and cartoons than they have the Bible. Uh, Let me test you on this. Let me show you this. According to popular thinking about heaven, when people go to heaven, who meets them at the gate? St. Peter. Uh, When you go to heaven, where do you sit? On a cloud. What's on your back? Wings. What's over your head? What are you playing all day? What do all those have in common? 
None of them are in the Bible. <laughs> oh, there's some harps in the Bible, but <laughs> we're going to sit on clouds and play them all the time. Uh, most people's view of heaven, quite frankly, they've gleaned more from cartoons and TV programs than they have the Bible. And so when you talk about heaven, that's the picture that comes to their mind. I'm, I'm going to sit on a cloud and play a harp all day with wings on my back and a halo over my head. Does that grip you? It's like, man, that sounds like a great way to spend eternity. I mean, like sitting on a cloud and playing a harp forever. <laughs> so, I'm sorry if some of you harpists in the crowd think that would be great. But you're in the minority. Um, that's not the Bible's picture of eternity. Not at all. Let's look. What does the Bible say that we will be doing in eternity? Oh, we will be worshiping. You're open to Revelation 22, right? Look at verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed. The curse is lifted. That's good news. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Yes, we will be worshiping. We will be doing more than that, though. We'll be doing other things as part of our worship. Look at verse 5. Revelation 22, verse 5. And night will be no more. They will need no lamp, light of lamp nor sun, for the Lord God will be their light. Look at this. And they will reign forever and ever. They will reign. Where have we heard that before? Where, where have we heard that before? Genesis 1. It's a return to Eden. That would be better. It's, it's paradise restored. It's mankind, human beings, image bearers, now being free to do what they were designed to do in the first place. When you and I are in eternity, we are going to be worshiping our, our Lord. But we're also going to be ruling, reigning with him. We will be those princes and princesses that he designed us human beings, us image bearers, to be. We will be living out our God-designed job description. We're going to be ruling and reigning under the smile of the great king and for his smile, fruitfully, enjoyably, productively. Forever and ever. You know, you can read more about the new heavens and the new earth and other places in the Bible. And one of those places is Isaiah chapter 65. You might want to join me there. I'm going to read it. Isaiah chapter 65. And it's one of those places that describes what the new heavens and the new earth will be like. Isaiah 65, beginning at verse 17. And God said through the prophet Isaiah, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem. You read in Revelation 21, the new Jerusalem. I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard the sound of weeping or the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For a young man shall die a hundred years old and a sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit, they shall not plant, and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. 
And this prophecy through Isaiah acknowledges, even as the people or, or the, the enemies threatening to come and take over, stealing their food, taking their houses, separating families, the people were living without. And God says, it won't always be like this, friends. It won't always be like this. I'm going to create a new heaven and a new earth where the work of your hands will be fruitful and enjoyable. You will enjoy your work and it will be fruitful. There won't be any more frustration. Things won't be taken away. I like to think of it like this. In a new heaven and a new earth, work will work. Work will work. Things will work. Things will be like they're supposed to be. Think of it. Princes and princesses ruling under the smile of our great king on a renewed earth without any sin, without any curse, work enjoyable, fruitful, productive. Sounds kind of like the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? But you might be sitting right now ready to push back and say, Pastor Larry, I don't work in a garden. (laughs) I I don't work in that kind of garden, the one you just read about in Genesis 1, and I sure don't work in the kind you just read about in Revelation 22. I don't work in a garden. It's a jungle out there. And you know what? That's a good analogy. It's, it's a jungle out there. It's true, isn't it? We, we live in a fallen world. When, when Adam and Eve sinned, there was a curse put on the earth. So has God scrapped his plan for us image bearers? This, this is an important subject. Has God just scrapped it? He told Adam and Eve, I'm designing you to be my image bearers. You're my prince and princess. You represent me and you reflect me like no other created thing. You're special. You're special, my special creation, my image bearers, my human beings. And I'm going to make you princes and princesses to rule in my name and for my glory. And so Adam and Eve defied God and they said, why be a prince and princess? I'd rather be my own king. I'd rather be my own queen. And they defied the God who created them. And not only did sin enter the human race, but curse did as well. So did God say, well, that didn't work. Is that what God did? Did God just scrap his plan? Did he just withdraw the job description he'd given his image bearers? This is fascinating. Look in the middle of your Bible, Psalm 8. Psalm chapter 8. I'd like to read the whole psalm, but for sake of time, let me just begin at verse 3. Psalm 8, verse, beginning at verse 3. The psalmist, David in this case, said, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon the, and the stars which you have set in place, what is man, what is mankind, that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and have put all things... Listen, let me read that again. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Friends, Psalm 8 was written in this era between the gardens. And in this era between the gardens, the Holy Spirit leads the psalmist to write this song that says that all things are still under our feet. 
we still have the responsibility, the job description of having dominion. And yet we read that and we think, boy, I, I don't see that. I, 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 don't, I don't see that. that. That's not descriptive of the way I live day in and day out. Just for a moment, can I just go back to Genesis 3? I want to read to you that passage I referred to about the curse being pronounced. In Genesis chapter 3, verses, let's just read 17, 18, and 19. God, speaking after Adam and Eve sinned, God said to Adam, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of your field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. In other words, you're going to die. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. We live that too, don't we? Not only did sin enter the human race, but because of Adam's sin, the man's sin, there was a curse pronounced upon everything It's not just human beings that die in this fallen world, in this era between the gardens. Everything dies. Everything dies eventually. Things break. You know, we we live that day in, day out, don't we? Whether we're talking about our paid jobs or schoolwork or work around the house, we all confess times of frustration. Things break. I mean, I was meditating on this sermon that I'd prepared yesterday as I spent about eight hours doing chores around the yard. (laughs) The chain kept coming off my chainsaw. I was trying to cut some branches down. How many times did I put that chain back on? I'm thinking, work doesn't always work. Stick came down, hit me right in the gut. (laughs) I didn't ask for that to happen. You're doing your schoolwork, and you think, this homework assignment makes no sense. You say, this just doesn't fit. This, things aren't working. I mean, your place of employment, maybe you're in sales and you were counting on a particular sale to come through and it didn't. And this, this, this comment here in Psalm 8 about all the beasts of the field being under our feet. Well, why does your pet pee on the carpet? Why don't you just tell them not to do it? You think, I'm, I'm the master? I'm the dominionizer over my pet? And I can't even get it to stop doing that. I'm serious. It's a fallen world. It's a fallen world. It's a broken world. Work doesn't always work. There are weeds, thorns, thistles. We get tired. We groan. We groan. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. It says in Romans chapter 8, verses 22 and 23, For we know, Paul writes, that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly, and sometimes outwardly, as we, eager, as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And so here Paul's writing as a fellow image bearer living in this era between the gardens. 
And he says it's like all of creation that's under the dominion of fallen man realizes this isn't the way it's supposed to be. And if we could personify non-human creation, it's as if non-human creation says, when is, when is our brokenness going to get fixed? When is the curse that we're living under going to get lifted? And it, it's as if non-human creation is looking at us, the image bearers, looking at us on tiptoe. Well, whenever the human beings, whenever the image bearers are restored, our restoration's coming with that. And so all of creation's living under this pain of the fallenness, the curse, groaning. And Paul says it's not just non-human creation. We human beings, we, we groan. He says we groan inwardly. At this stage in my life, I came in from my chores last night and it wasn't just inward. <laughs> I groaned outwardly. I was sore. We get tired. We groan. So, the garden that's been lost, paradise lost, everything worked. It was fruitful, enjoyable, and the paradise yet to be revealed, yet to be regained. Everything's perfect, enjoyable, gladness, fruitful. Everything worked. Everything worked. Works. But we live in this era between the garden where work doesn't always work. We groan. And until the Lord comes back, we will continue to live and work in this era between the garden. So, does the gospel, does the gospel of Jesus Christ have any effect on us, image bearers, redeemed image bearers, Christians? Does it have any practical effect on our lives as we continue our journey, our work, whether at school or at the workplace or at home, is there any practical application of the gospel? Monday through Friday, Saturday chores, Sunday afternoon, whatever you're doing, does the gospel make any difference in how you, fellow Christian, and I live in this era between the gardens? The book of Ephesians is fascinating on this, and this will be the last passage we go to at any length, so... Ephesians chapter 5. You can turn, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 6. You can turn there, but let me show you something in the book of Ephesians. I think many times, and I'm not trying to pick on any particular churches or group of Christians, but so often Christian groups or even local churches assume that the gospel's good to get us saved. And it is. But then it's almost as if we put the gospel on the shelf unless we need to pull it off the shelf to witness to an unsafe friend, relative, co-worker. My friends, the gospel ought never to be put on the shelf. The gospel makes a difference every day. It's not the porch to the house. It is the house. It's the house in which we live. We live in the context of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it makes a difference. And if you study the book of Ephesians, paying attention to that, you'll notice that the Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit, does a fascinating thing. If you read the first three chapters of Ephesians, Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3, it is full of the gospel. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And love, he predestined us to be adopted sons. And he goes on for three chapters just 
laying it on thick. Do you see the gospel, my friends? This is what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And then look with me. If your Bible's open to chapter 4, verse 1. So here's the pivot. Here's the pivot. He spent three chapters telling us about the gospel. And then you get to chapter 4, verse 1, and he says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This is who you are. This is whose you are. You belong to God because of Jesus Christ and what he did on your behalf through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection. This is whose you are. Walk that way. Live that way. Live everyday life that way. And if you continue on, you can see in this passage where he lays it out a little more fully in chapter 4. And I'm going to go ahead and read verses 17 through 24. Now, what we're seeing is the Apostle Paul's telling us Christians, because you are in Christ, life is different. The gospel makes a difference in how you live everyday life. Chapter 4, verse 17. Now, this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles, that's just a synonym for unbelievers, as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart, their hardness of heart. They, they become callous and have been given over, they've given over themselves to sensuality, greed, to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ. Underline that. That's not how you learn Christ. Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, which is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed and in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God. Where have you heard that before? Created after the likeness of God. Redeemed image bearer. In true righteousness and holiness. And so Paul is making these general comments in chapter 4. Life's different now. Now that you're in Christ, the gospel changes everything. You put off your old self. You don't say, I'm not like I used to be. I don't have the same look at life. I don't have the same orientation to life. My, my view of everything has changed. My, my motivations have changed. How I see things have changed. All because of the gospel. Now, if you keep reading the book of Ephesians, it gets even more fascinating. Because if you were to ask, for instance, okay, if the gospel is supposed to make that kind of significant practical difference in how I live everyday life as a married person, not all of us are married, but for married people, so how does the gospel impact me as a married woman? Wives, submit to your husbands. Finish this for me, ladies. As unto the Lord. As unto the Lord. Husbands, love your wives just, just as men. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And Paul's saying there, do you see, my friends, do you see, my friends, in Ephesus, how the gospel shapes your marriage? That there's this vertical orientation in your marriage that a Christian woman says, the gospel of Jesus Christ has changed you. And it impacts every day my wifing. And a Christian man says, oh, I see who I am in Christ. 
And the gospel changes my everyday husbanding. And you keep reading in Ephesians and you say, well, how does the gospel impact my parenting? Fathers, bring your children up. The instruction and training of the Lord. So as dads and as moms, we say, the gospel makes a difference in how I parent my children. You Christian kids, does the gospel make any difference in how you relate to your parents as a Christian kid? Oh, yeah. You look at it, kids. <laughs> it's in the Bible. <laughs> Where, as Christian kids, you are to obey your parents in the Lord. For this is right. In the Lord. There's always that vertical orientation. Okay, but we came today to hear about work. So you say, okay, how does the gospel shape my work? Whether it's work around the house, the yard, for a paycheck, students at school. How does the gospel impact your work as we continue our journey in this era between the gardens. Chapter 6, verse 5. Bond servants, we're going to use that as an employee. By the way, bond servant doesn't have the same imagery that maybe modern slavery had, but similar. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by way of eye servants as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them, not stop, and stop your threatening, knowing that he was both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there will be no partiality with him. I'm going to give you four H words, four words that begin with the letter H, to help us remember how the gospel impacts our everyday work. Four words that begin with H that will remind us that as I live as a redeemed person, as I live as a saved person, as a follower of Jesus Christ, yes, in this era between the gardens, these things ought to um, qualify, describe my everyday work. The first H word is the word humble. Humility, humble. Ephesians 6, 5 says, Bond servants obey earthly masters with fear and trembling. In the original language, when you see those words put together, fear and trembling, many times they connote humility. To walk as Jesus did with humility. It's interesting, when Paul wrote to Timothy, chapter 6, verse 1 of 1 Timothy, he says, Let all who are under the yoke as bond servants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. And there Paul says, if you're under authority, we would say in our culture, if you're an employee, the way you treat your boss is a reflection of how the gospel is practical. And if you live as if the gospel has no effect on how you talk about your boss or to your boss, you're defaming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul said similarly to Titus chapter 2, verse 9, bond servants are, be, are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, get this, not argumentative. Think about that, not argumentative. Do you have any sad memories of arguing with your boss or your teacher or kids, your parents who are in authority over you? So many times we talk back to our boss, or if we're afraid to do that, we'll at least talk behind his back. What would motivate 
What would motivate a Christian, someone redeemed by the grace of God through Jesus Christ, what would motivate a Christian not to do that? What would motivate a Christian not to badmouth his boss, either to his face or behind his back? What would motivate him? Did you see it here in this passage? Chapter 6, verse 5, what do you see there? As you would Christ, we do our daily work, whether it's a student or a homemaker or a retired person or getting a paycheck, we do our work with the eyes of our heart locked on Jesus Christ. I want to do my work for him. The Christian worker, the Christian student doesn't just do his work for the boss, but for Jesus Christ, that we remember whose we are. We work for a higher calling, and that brings humility as we do our, our daily work, whether it's in the plant, the shop, the office, on the phone, at the computer, at the kitchen sink, doing our schoolwork, no matter what we're doing, always the eyes of our heart are locked on Jesus Christ. And I am studying because of Jesus Christ. I'm doing my work here at the machine. I'm doing my work here at my desk for the glory of Jesus Christ. He's redeemed me with his precious blood. Oh, what a privilege it is to be His. And out of astonished gratitude for the mercy found in Him, I want to do my work with humility, that we should be marked with humility. Some of you in this church are bosses. You own your own business. Or maybe you're a, a shift manager. Or, or maybe you're an executive with your company of some kind. And Paul makes a point here. This isn't just for employees. This is for employers, too. That the gospel makes a difference in how an employer treats his employees. That a Christian employer doesn't threaten his employees. A teacher doesn't threaten their students. Parents don't threaten their kids. But there's a humility that marks every believer no matter what context we're in because we remember whose we are. And there's a humility that, that, that permeates our attitude toward those who are under our authority. That you know, we need to lead as leaders, but we lead with Christ reflecting humility. Second H word, first H word, humility. Second H word, honesty. Honesty, that we should be honest workers. Chapter 6, verse 5, Paul says, with a sincere heart. And that word sincere means without ulterior motives. The only motive we have as Christian workers, or should I say the ultimate motive we have as Christian workers, Christian students, is to please Christ, to serve Christ. We don't need to pretend anything. Sometimes in the workforce, and if we had time, we could hear stories you want to tell. But in the classroom and at the workplace, sometimes workers or students pretend to be something they're not. They pretend to be a good student or a good worker when in fact they're lazy. They want to impress the teacher, want to impress the boss. When in reality, that's not true at all. Paul says, no, there should be a consistency, a sincerity in your heart as workers. You know, if we're insincere at our places of work, and I'll kind of talk about this briefly, I was thinking about what are the ugly, the rotten fruits of insincerity? If we're not sincere, we're not honest in our workplace, what are a couple of common rotten fruits that come from that? One is stealing. Um, I remember years ago, uh, early days of our church, I had outside employment to put food on the table for the family. 
remember talking to the owner of the business one time. He was saying that in the business that I worked in, that the most, the biggest loss wasn't shoplifting. It was a retail business. It wasn't shoplifting. It was employee theft. Employee theft. And I thought, I wonder if that's true in a lot of businesses. That employees can take product or office supplies home, you know, just kind of forget and sneak that into your briefcase or whatever, your lunchbox. And you end up taking things home that you never should take home. I'll just borrow it. I'll bring it back someday. Stealing things, stealing money, padding the expense account, putting things on the expense account that shouldn't be on the expense account. Stealing time. I earned my way through college working at a factory. And there was a guy in my department who professed the name of Christ. I don't know his heart, but he professed the name of Christ. But he would regularly go over to this toolbox and pull out this little New Testament and stand there and read on company time. Our foreman was not a Christian by a long shot. He was not a Christian. He had no evidence of no profession. And he said to this fellow worker one night, I was there, I was standing six feet away. He says, Ricky, he says, that Bible will tell you not to steal. Yeah. Well, then quit stealing the company's time. And I was embarrassed for the name of Christ. I thought, here's this guy looking so pious, so spiritual, standing there reading his Bible, but in actuality, he was stealing the company's time. You know, making... Uh, Sure, you get to break as soon as you can go on break, but somehow forgetting that the break's over and lingering or, you know, whatever. Stealing time from the company, hiding out in the bathroom. It happens in all kinds of ways. Christians, Christians aren't marked by that because we have a higher calling. We're working for the smile of our glorious, gracious Savior. And so we work with honesty. Uh, there's no deception, no ulterior motives. We don't steal. We don't lie. Why? There's a twin passage to Ephesians 6 in Colossians 3, and we won't turn there. But let me just read you Colossians 3.22, kind of a parallel passage. Paul said to the Colossian believers, Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart. Similar picture. Sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. That we realize as Christian workers that it doesn't matter if the boss is watching or not. Kids, your parents say, I'm going to run to the grocery store, but while I'm gone, I want you to do this or that. <laughs> so when the parents pull out of the driveway, they get right at your chores. What do you think? Cats away, the mice will play. <laughs> you know, when I hear the garage door, I'll get back at it. <laughs> mm. No, as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, we're doing it for his smile and under his smile. So it doesn't matter if the boss is on a two-week business trip or the parents ran to the store because our, our gracious Lord is there with us. And we honor him. We honor him by working with honesty. So humility, honesty, the third one, you ready? Hard working. <laughs> Christians ought to be marked by hard workingness. I like the NIV translation of Isaiah 6-7. I, I really like the NIV here. It says, solve Serve wholeheartedly. The word in the original means enthusiasm. It means enthusiasm. And in this society where people always want to know the minimum amount of work they have to do, 
Christians are marked by a very different characteristic. I've been gripped by the grace. I've been gripped by the gospel of God. And because of that, I, w- I want to be hardworking. I don't want to think of what's the least amount of work I need to do to get the biggest paycheck I can get. You know, you think about different applications of this. Um, the worker who does the minimum amount necessary to not get fired. Or the student that says, is this, is this going to be on the test? What does that mean? What does that mean? It means if it's not on the test, I'm not spending the time studying it. Or how many pages do we have to have for this paper? You know, can we triple space? Can we use 16-point font? You know, and it, it's, it's what's the least amount of work I have to do to get my parents off my back, to pass this course, to get my paycheck. But Christians, even though we're living in this era between the garden, the gospel has gotten a grip on us. And because the gospel of Jesus Christ has gotten a practical grip on us, we're not thinking of minimum. We're thinking, what could I do for the glory of God? How could I reflect my Lord here? How could I reflect my Lord in doing the best job I can do? Hard working. I'll go ahead and mention this. <laughs> Some of you know I have a pet peeve of Christians saying to one another, well, take it easy. <laughs> I think this isn't chapter and verse, friends, but I think it would be better if Christians said to other Christians, work hard for the glory of God. Study hard for the glory of God. And then we speak that way to one another. Work hard for the glory of God. Study hard for the glory of God. Do those chores for the glory of God. It would be amazing how our lives would reflect him more clearly, more brightly. The fourth H word. fourth H word is hope. Remember Psalm 8? That psalm we read a few minutes ago where it says, even though we're living in this era between the garden, the psalmist who was living in this era between the garden says that God has put everything under our feet. The job description, the job description God gave us as image bearers is still intact. It's still in force. But you say, we're not living it. I'm not doing it. I don't see it. And, and it can get discouraging. And if we're not careful, we could get cynical and say, this, it's not real. It's not true that everything's under our feet, that I'm ruling and reigning now in this fallen world. I want to show you something that stirs hope in our hearts. One more passage. Go to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. This is going to sound familiar to you. Hebrews 2, I'll start in verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, and we want to say, Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have created him a glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. The author of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 8, the very same psalm we read. Look at the next line. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. And you want to say, thank you for your honesty. Whoever you are, author of Hebrews, thank you for your honesty. God put everything under our feet, but I ain't seeing it. We're not done. Look at verse 9. But 
we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everywhere. Do you see what the author of Hebrews is doing here? He's saying the job description that God gave Adam and Eve is still in force. Human beings, image bearers, still have the responsibility of working for the glory of God, ruling and reigning over the created world in the name of God and for his smile. But as we look around, as we look in the mirror, we say it's not happening. It's not happening perfectly. It's not happening consistently. And the author of Hebrews says, he says that, but then he says, but we see Jesus. Do you know Jesus has given many descriptions, many titles in the Bible, but one that would be very pertinent to our conversation right now is this. Jesus came as the last Adam. 1 Corinthians 15, he came as the last Adam. Or if you'll allow me some poetic license, I almost feel like paraphrasing that. Jesus came as the ultimate man. Adam means man. Adam means man. The first Adam blew it. The first Adam blew it. He defied the God who made him. He didn't carry out his commission as he was supposed to. And so because of his defiance, a curse came upon everything and everyone. And you and I live with that. We live with that in this era between the gardens. But Jesus Christ came as a human being. He was the God-man. He was Adam. He was the Adam that Adam was supposed to be and wasn't. He was the second Adam. He was the, the last Adam. He was the ultimate man. And so Jesus came as the sinless one. And the night before the cross, John 17, check me out on this. The night before the cross, Jesus said, Father, I have done all the work you've given me to do. I've, I've not had a single day in my life I could say that. But here Jesus is hours from his death and he's saying, I've, I've done everything you told me to do, Father. I've always done what you've wanted me to do. He was the perfect Adam. He was the perfect Adam. So we have a Savior. We have Jesus Christ. He's the perfect Adam. Our forefather, Adam, blew it. And so God gave us a new Adam. He gave us the ultimate man, Jesus Christ. We see Jesus. And so think about it. If you and I as redeemed people are in Christ, if we are in Christ, we are in him, now we, now we know that because we're in him, this fallen world we live in won't always be fallen. The brokenness that we live with day in, day out won't always be broken. Oh, we groan, but we groan with hope. We groan with hope. My, my Christian friends, we live in a cynical age. The people at your workplace, people at your neighborhood, people at your school are cynical. I think cynicism is becoming rampant in our society. But as Christians, even as we groan also, while we pull the weeds in our garden or we fix that thing again, or whatever it is, we're groaning. We say, we know it won't always be this way because we see Jesus. The last Adam, the ultimate man who is restoring all things. And so we put our hope in him. We look forward to that promised day when Jesus Christ comes back. 
And according to the promise given us in the very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, verse 5, there won't be any more curse. <laughs> don't you hunger for that? Don't you hunger for that? When you go to funerals, don't you hunger for that? When you see your relatives failing, when you see that broken thing again, say, I hunger for the day when all the wrongs will be made right. When all the broken things won't be broken anymore. And we know that because of Jesus Christ, the last Adam, that day's coming. And so we continue to be faithful in doing our work with humility and with honesty, working hard with hope in our hearts. My friends, the gospel makes everything different. And kids, when you go back to school on Tuesday, if you're a Christian kid, you're doing your schoolwork with a whole new perspective, with your eyes on Jesus Christ. When you go to your place of employment, you're not like the unsaved people you work with. You're not better than them. You're saved. You're the recipient of undeserved grace. But because of that, you do your work differently. When you're doing your chores around the home, you're not complaining or belly aching. You say, Lord, thank you for giving me reasons to serve. I want to do my chores for your glory. Under your smile and for your smile. 